0: I have a question for you this morning as we, as we start off. How do you view doctrines of the Christian faith? By doctrines, I mean the foundational truths, the foundational teachings of Scripture, like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of end times, do they excite you? Or do you wonder, how does this apply to my life? How is this relevant for practical everyday life? Do you view these doctrines, this theology, do you view this as good and needed in in some way, but better suited for the halls of academia? In Colossians, Paul presents the doctrine of Christ, his preeminence and the believer's salvation is foundational for combating the error of the false teachers and for living life. Paul doesn't use the term doctrine of Christ or doctrine of salvation, but he informs us of the truth of of who Christ is and what he did. He informs us about man and he informs us about salvation and its implications for our lives. He informs us about the church, and he informs us about end times. These truths serve as the basis for Paul's commands in Colossians, for his commands on how we should avoid error, and his commands on how we should live. So our our passage this morning from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16 through 3-4. And the thesis for today is the doctrines of the Christian faith are relevant for everyday life, for our living. And so, remember their truth to guide your life. The title of the message this morning is, Walking Worthy, Walking Worthy of the Lord. So, let's look at our first point. Understand the role of the law and the finished work of Christ to avoid legalism. Understand the role of the law and the finished work of Christ to avoid legalism. Look with me in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath? Well, let's start off and let's look at the first word, therefore. And we need to ask why it's there, what it's there for. Therefore here refers back to verses 13 through 15 that we studied last week, wherein Paul provides a clear teaching about who Christ is and what he did, and the believers resulting position. That's what the therefore is there for. Let's look at some of those verses from last week. We see in verse 9, who is God? Who is Christ? He is God. In verse 10, in Christ, you are complete. There's nothing more to add. In verse 13, Christ forgave us our trespasses. He took your sins and my sins, if we're believers, upon himself. He died in your place. His work is finished. And in verse 15, Christ defeated the enemy. You're no longer bound by these rules, by these laws. You are free to live for Christ. So therefore, based on these truths, Paul gives us a command. Let's look first at the structure of the passage. It follows from the previous part that we saw last week. And in each of these, in 16 and 17, and then 18 and 19, we're going to see that Paul provides a caution. He provides that in the form of a command to do or to not do something. So he begins with a caution. He then is going to give us characteristics of the false teachers or the false teachings. So, command or caution, characteristic. And then he's going to tell us something about Christ, about God, that influences what the false teachers are saying. So look with me. Let no one pass judgment on you. Paul's caution, his command to judge, to pronounce judgment. It parallels being taken captive that we saw last week in verse 8. Don't let anybody do this, it's a command. You say, great, how do I prevent somebody from judging me? Well, it's more your response to the judgment than keeping them from judging you. How do you do that? Cease submitting to them. Don't do what they say. Don't follow their rules. Put your trust in the finished work of Christ, not in what somebody else says. But judgment is based on a standard. And so we see here the standard of the false teachers, under the put a heading there, what are the characteristics of these false teachers and their, their rules? He says, don't let anybody judge you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The false teachers were passing judgment in two areas, food and festivals. These are the same issues that Paul expressed concern regarding the Galatians in 4.10, where he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Your life is not consistent with the truth of who you are in Christ. Why is that? But let's consider this passage in a broader context of overall Scripture. In the Old Testament, we see that God called a people to himself. He he chose them. He provided guidelines for living. They were supposed to eat and live and worship in a certain way because of who they were, because God had chosen them not to earn anything or to make them something that they weren't. But in two of the four times we see this this phrase, festival and new moon and Sabbath, two of the four times it occurs, we see that the children of Israel had already corrupted these rituals. They were already corrupting the laws that God had given them. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see Isaiah says, referring to God, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. So the false teachers continued a corrupt practice, and they had converted it to legalism. Legalism says Christ is not sufficient. You must obey the law or do something to be justified. Legalism confuses justification with sanctification. The fancy terms, justification, is just God's declaring the believer righteous. That's all that is. We're, we're saved. The Sanctification is God conforming the believer to the image of Christ. Lifelong process done by God in which we participate. But the legalists confused the two, thinking we can earn our salvation, and we can't. So, what's the truth about these things? Look with me at verse 17. These, these things, are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These, these prohibitions of food and drink, these requirements for rituals and festivals, these special days of the Old Testament law they're a shadow of things to come. Now, we've all seen a shadow. If we were to go outside right now, you could walk around and we'll see a shadow in front of us or a shadow by the car or by a tree. Shadow doesn't have any substance. It just indicates the presence of an object, the existence of something else. So, to what did the Old Testament laws point or foreshadow? Paul tells us, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance of the body to which the Old Testament laws and rituals pointed is Christ. The law was part of God's promise of salvation in Christ. We see similar phrasing in Hebrews 10.1 to make the same point. It says, for since the law was but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It wasn't the purpose of the law to make us perfect. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, Christ had come. He'd finished his work. He'd fulfilled the law. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the point here is that the law can't make anyone righteous, and that was never its intent. Therefore, believers are no longer compelled to obey these laws. Further, obedience to these things, these rules, these laws, these festivals, with an intent to earn merit or earn favor of God, is to undermine the person and work of Christ. The false teachers rejected Christ's finished work. They demanded work on top of it. That's what the Colossian believers were at risk of missing you may say, well, where do we see this stuff today? Let me share an example. It was a couple of years ago, I was with a brother from GBC. We were at Panera. We've been talking for a while, and after we've been talking, an elderly man came up to us, and we hadn't even seen him. He comes up, and he goes, you're wrong. Like, where'd this come from? He goes, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the Bible. It's going, oh, okay. He said, he went on, and he said, we need to follow the Old Testament, and specifically the Mosaic law. This is like a year or two ago. I'm mean, really? Interesting. He could not or would not answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? What did Jesus do on the cross? How is man reconciled to God? His focus was, and he said he was doing it, to obey the Mosaic law perfectly. The false teachers are still with us today. Let me ask you a question. How could a greater understanding of Christ's finished work and the role of the law help you guard against the concerns of what others may say about you, of their judgment or their condemnation? How could these truths help you today? What are areas that you tend to forget the role of the law and the finished work of Christ? There's certain activities that you may do, it's like, well, gosh, you know. If I think if I read an extra 15 minutes today, that'll that'll please God. Just think about these things. God declared you righteous based on Christ's work, not yours. You need to rest in the finished work of Christ. The false teachers failed to understand the role of the law, they failed to understand that Christ fulfilled the law, they failed to understand who Christ is. Let's look at our second point. Understand the preeminence of Christ, his headship and his authority to avoid mysticism. Understand the preeminence of Christ, his headship and authority to avoid mysticism. Look with me at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. What's going on here? First of all, Paul provides us a caution in the form of a command, let no one disqualify you. It follows along the idea of don't be captivated, don't let anyone judge you. To disqualify just means to cheat, to judge, to condemn. To rob of a prize. But like judgment, it's based on a standard. Years ago, when my my kids were growing up, I served as a, they used to swim, I served as an official there. And so we had a set of rules that we went by. It wasn't my job to disqualify the the swimmer, they would disqualify themselves. But we had to go by those rules. As long as the swimmer did that, everything's fine. But we had a set of rules. If I decided I didn't like what somebody did and it wasn't consistent with the rules, I should be disqualified. It's kind of what's going on here with these people. So let's look at the characteristic of the false teachers and their false teaching. What did they do? They were insisting on asceticism, worship of angels. They went on in detail about visions. They were puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. Paul provides three characteristics that reveal the false teacher's hope and trust for spirituality. First, they trusted in their mystical activities, insisted on asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism is just the denial of self, fasting to achieve some mystical experience. This is a look at me, aren't I great kind of humility. They worshiped angels. They called on the angels to ward off evil spirits. You go, well, where do we see that today? i me give you an example. Do you ever look at a horoscope to see how your day will go? You're saying something other than God has power over your day, and you want to listen to it. That's just worship. Wrong worship. Number two, they trusted in their mystical experiences, going on in detail about visions. The false teachers trusted in what they had seen, their experience. The problem with experience is it doesn't come with meaning. We have to add that. And we typically do a a poor job. Peter talked about an experience when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was standing there. He saw Elijah and Moses. They were all talking with Jesus. He saw Jesus transfigured. He heard the voice of God. I don't think any of us have ever had an experience like that. That's an incredible experience. But Peter's response to that experience is to say, but I have a more sure word, Scripture. Great experience, but that's not where he gained his confidence. Third, they trusted in themselves. They were puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. They were prideful. They were arrogant. Their experience gave them a false sense that their their beliefs and their actions pleased God. It fueled their pride, which was driven by a sinful heart. You see, the mind doesn't act independently from the heart. We think about the things we love, we love the things we think about, and we act accordingly. Jesus summarized this well in Luke 6.45. He said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, these false teachers, they, they lack true humility, which comes from an understanding of their true need. They needed Christ. They needed Christ's forgiveness. They needed Christ's righteousness. and They were seeking righteousness in the wrong place. They missed that. So, what are areas you may struggle with with pride? What's the basis Something you have, something you do. And how might a greater confidence, a greater understanding in Christ's preeminence and his finished work on the cross help you? The final characteristic reveals the root problem. Look with me with verse 19. We see, we learn about Christ here. It says, not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. What was their issue? They weren't holding fast to the head, they weren't holding fast to Christ. Christ wasn't part of their quest for spirituality. Their hope, their trust was in themselves, their understanding of what was going on, trusting in their rules. And not only that, their ability to perfectly obey those rules rather than Christ. They failed to understand Christ's preeminence, that he is God. And so they pursued their own means to God. Well, Let's ask a question. How important is the head for the body? It's critical. Paul goes on, he says, "...from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." let's break this down into two parts. Let's look first at from whom the whole body grows with a growth that's from God, from whom Christ gives life to the body. And what's the whole body? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. It's you and me as believers are the body of Christ. Your only connection to God is through Christ. And your only connection to Christ is by faith in who he is, God, and what he did, died on the cross to pay for your sins. Growth here is not a physical growth, it's a spiritual growth. It's that ongoing work of God conforming us to the image of Christ, the likeness of Christ, continues for a lifetime. And growth doesn't occur from obeying Old Testament laws, doesn't occur from asceticism and worshiping angels. It doesn't occur from any of that stuff. Growth comes solely through God. So what do we learn about the body? Let's look at the middle part of this verse here. It says, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. This is body life. This is the body working together. The body being in a body and Christ being the head, the source of our life. The joints and ligaments, that's the body of Christ. That's you and me as believers. It's the church which is nourished and strengthened, knit together. So how does the church do this? How does the body do this? How do the joints and ligaments do this? As we each remain connected to Christ, as we each grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we each exercise our spiritual gifts for the edification of the body, As we encourage each other, we're nourished in the together. Let me ask you a question, how do you guard against false teachers? What part of God's word, prayer, fellowship play in your life? Are you connected to a local body? Are you connected to this local body? Are you a committed member? Are you involved in the lives of other members here? Are you speaking into their lives, and are you allowing them to speak into your life? It's being nourished and knit together. The false teachers failed to understand Christ's preeminence. They failed to understand that He is God. So they looked to their efforts. They looked to the spirit world. They looked to their experiences for confidence in their standing before God. Look at our third point. Remember your union with Christ to avoid succumbing to false teaching. Remember your union with Christ to avoid succumbing to false teaching, beginning in verse 20. But you say, where did union with with Christ just come from? Where do I get that from the passage? First of all, what is union with Christ? Union with Christ refers to the truth of salvation. That's what it's talking about. It it speaks of the believer's intimate relationship with Christ. This is the truth that Paul established in verses 13 through 15 that we studied last week. When you trust Christ, God declares you righteous on behalf of Christ's work. So, if you're in Christ, every act of Christ's accomplishment of redemption counts for you. When Christ died, you died. When Christ was buried, you were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised. And we see in Ephesians 2:6 that the believer is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's union with Christ, it's salvation. Where do we see this in the passage? It's indicated in Scripture, typically by the little preposition in. We see that a lot in the first chapter of Ephesians. We see it here also. Also, with the preposition "with," we see that more in Colossians. So, in Colossians one twenty-one, you were reconciled in Christ's body; you're in His body. Colossians two ten, you as a believer are filled with Christ; Christ is in you; you are in Christ. In Colossians two twelve, you were buried with Him; therefore, you died to sin. In verse twelve, you were raised with him. In verse 13, God made you alive with him through faith. And then in our passage here, verse 20, with Christ you died to what? The elemental spirits of the world. So the believer's union with Christ, our salvation, is central to Paul's instruction on how to live, on how to avoid false teaching. Look with me at verse 20. If... With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Paul states if, or more accurately, since you died. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Since you died and are united with Christ, since you were saved, you are free from the elemental spirits of the world. Paul wants you, me, wants us to remember the truth of our salvation the truth of our union with Christ to guide our life. Who's the you here? Well, it's the Colossian believers. Today, that's you and me as believers, all that are in Christ today. But to be dead to the things of the world is to no longer respond to them, to no longer seek joy in them, to no longer trust them, to no longer give them any value elemental spirits of the world, we touched on this last week, they're the fallen human thinking. But that fallen human thinking is is submitting to a certain power, and it's not God. So, Paul says, since this is true, since you are alive in Christ, he continues, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Paul's applying the truth of our union with Christ, the Colossian believers' union with Christ, applying this to life. Understand this, doctrines are not some cerebral, academic thought meant for the classroom or philosophical discussions. We often think that, though. The doctrines of the faith, the teachings, the truth of the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation are meant to apply to our daily lives to guide how we live. Union with Christ, salvation, is the basis of Paul's question. He asks, if you're saved, why are you living this way? Why are you living inconsistent with the truth of your salvation, of your union with Christ? Why do you submit to its rules? Paul had a similar question for the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Christ triumphed over them. You are now free from their bondage. Well, what are some of these regulations? Paul goes on in the passage. He says, do not handle Do not taste, do not touch. These regulations are a continuation of the food and drink that we saw in verse 16, the asceticism of verse 18 of denying self. The false teachers thought that by not touching something, they'd remain clean or or holy. But it misses the truth of what Paul has been saying. The Colossian believers were already clean, they were already made righteous they were made holy by union with Christ. That's the only way to be clean. That's the only way to be made righteous. That's the only way to have right standing with God. Not partaking of food or drink, not touching something, doesn't cleanse you, doesn't keep you from sin. Only God can declare you righteous. The false teachers misunderstood Christ. They misunderstood salvation, union with Christ they failed to understand mark 7:15 there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of the person from the abundance of the heart that's what defiles him so paul tells us three things about these regulations look with me at verse 22 first they refer to things that all perish as they're used these things and the stuff about these things they perish They're temporal. At best, the satisfaction or joy that they provide is strictly temporal. Second, they're according to man's precepts and teachings. They're man-centered. They're devoid of Christ. They serve to lead believers astray. What did they do? They had left the commandment of God for the tradition of men. Third, they're ineffective in transforming the heart. Look at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in what? In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So the regulations provide an appearance of wisdom. They promote their own religion. But like pride, there's no basis, there's no substance, there's no benefit to this. The false teachers sought their own wisdom rather than Christ, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. But this isn't the worst of it. We see the main problem here at the end of verse 23. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's the problem. That's our problem today. This is why these false teachers are so dangerous. They, they put forth plausible arguments that delude. We saw that in 2.4. They're empty deceit that captivate. We saw that in Colossians 2.8. There are legalistic rules that result in judgment. We saw that in verse 16. And there are mystical false worship that result in disqualification. We saw that in 18. But they are powerless to address the problem of the heart. This is what Christ does. As a believer, he gives us a new heart, a heart that's willing to trust him, submit to him, a new heart to love him. These truths guard against the error of the false teachers. Let me ask you a question. How does your salvation, your union with Christ, guide your life, what you pursue, what you avoid, what you listen to? In a world of false teachers and judgment, how does your union with Christ influence your extending grace to those who offend you or those who have sinned and fallen? How does your view of Christ impact that? The false teachers didn't understand union with Christ. They didn't understand the preeminence of Christ. Their teaching failed in permanence, in truth, and in effectiveness. Their teaching failed. But if verse 20 to 23 is a wrong response to union with Christ, then what is a correct response to union with Christ? Look with me in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Remember your union with Christ to walk worthy of the Lord. Remember your union with Christ, your salvation, to walk worthy of the Lord. We see this idea of walking or walking worthy in several of the Colossian passages. In Colossians 1.10, Paul is praying for the believers in Colossae. And if you remember, he prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will and that was spiritual wisdom and understanding. But the purpose of that prayer, Paul states right after that, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That was the purpose of the knowledge of God's will. That was the purpose of the spiritual wisdom and understanding that Paul was praying for the believers in Colossae, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 6, which serves as the foundation of the passage that we've been looking at here, Paul says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. And so everything else that Paul has been saying here goes back to, this is a part of walking in him. And in Colossians 3.17, where Paul commands, he says, live life consistent with who Christ is and what he's done. It's my paraphrase. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If then you've been raised with Christ, if or since you have been raised with Christ. Let me get this back to verse 20. We were buried with Christ and now we're raised with Christ. That's Paul. Paul saying here is we're united with Christ. We are saved. We're born again. Paul provides two commands based on this this foundation of our salvation. First, he says, since this is true, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek these things. Pursue them with your heart. Make this continual, habitual. Don't ever stop doing this. This is the course of your life. I-, I thought as I was looking at this, I thought of a, of a ship. Let's say it's leaving the Norfolk, Norfolk terminals. It's going around the world. It's going to set a bearing. It's going to set a course. Hurricanes are going to come. Storms are going to come. Waves are going to come. Rain is going to come. Lightning is going to come. And it's going to beat against that ship. Got to keep the course. It's the same thing with us in life. We're, we're going in life. We need to pursue Christ, but there are going to be trials that come. There going to be hardships. Keep your course. Seek, pursue things above, the heavenly in contrast with the earthly, the eternal in contrast with the temporal, the spiritual in contrast with the fleshly. Stop listening to and submitting to these false teachers. Set your heart on Christ. Talks about the things above. where, Where is this and what's going on? This is where Christ is. It's the kingdom of God's beloved Son into which you were transferred. Remember that from Colossians 1.13. That's where we are. Stop looking back to the domain of darkness. God took you out of that. Focus on where you are. What else is going on? Christ, he's seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the place of his prominence, preeminence, his divine authority. He is king and he's victor. Paul is saying, don't seek the temporal, which you cannot keep, when you already have the eternal through union with Christ, which you cannot lose. I borrowed that from Gemellion. Second, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind, set your thinking, think on these things, the things above where Christ is. Pursue Christ with your whole being. It's your thoughts, your mind, your heart. The idea here, I said it a little bit earlier, we think about the things we love, and we love the things we think about, and we act accordingly. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 6.45, from the abundance of the heart. We act on what we love. But Paul's been talking about this all along. So focus on the truths about who Christ is and what he has done. We're to live differently. We're to pursue different interests because of our union with Christ. We should live for God's glory. Stop setting your mind on the things on earth. That's not where your life is. Paul goes on and he tells us, why should you pursue Christ? What's the foundation? What's the basis for this? Why should you set your mind on the things above? Paul tells us in verse three, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The first reason is for or because. Because you died. What do we learn about that? Because you are united to Christ. Because you are saved. Because your life is in Christ. Therefore, because you have died, because you're united to Christ, pursue Christ. Set your heart and mind on these things above because your life is a heavenly life. Because your life is in Christ and thus inseparable from Christ. Union with Christ, salvation, is the basis for why we should live a certain way. What's another reason? Paul tells us here in verse 3. Second, your life is hidden in Christ and God, hidden with Christ and God. As a result of your death, burial, and resurrection, you are in union with Christ. You are saved. You're now alive in Christ. Your life is in heaven. But there's an aspect of this that we still don't understand. As believers here on earth, we can say this, and we think we have a glimpse of it, but there's an aspect we still don't fully understand. It's a mystery, and we don't see clearly today. But we will at some point in the future. And Paul talks about that here. Why else should we do this? It's because of our future hope. Look with me at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Paul now addresses the future aspect of our salvation, the future aspect of our union with Christ. And he states here, two future events... And these future events should provide us great hope, even today, and great confidence. Even in light of the turmoil in the world, we should get great confidence from this. First of all, when Christ, who is your life, appears, there is a day when Christ returns. There is a day when Christ will appear. And Christ is our life. Christ is the life of every believer. You pass from death to life when you are united to Christ by faith in his finished work. You're saved. Again, there are aspects of this that we fully don't understand today. There's still a mystery part of it. But at some point in the future, Christ will appear. The veil is going to be pulled back and Christ in all his glory will be revealed. That which is currently hidden will be made plain. It will appear. And when this occurs then you also will appear with him in glory. Herein is our hope. When Christ appears as believers, we will be with him. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will have been conformed to the image of Christ because we shall see him as he is. John goes on, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That was part of the problem with the false teachers. Their hope was in the wrong place. Their hope for purification, for holiness, for a right standing with God was apart from God. They could never achieve it. And John gives them the answer right here. Hope in Christ. That's the purification. We will be like him. The sanctification process will be complete. No more physical ailments, no more sin, no more sorrow. We will be with him in glory, in heaven, in the presence of God. And that should bring great hope and joy today, even with the specific trials and the specific struggles that you may be experiencing. So what are the things of this world that challenge your focus on Christ? How does your union with Christ guide your pursuits? How does your union with Christ strengthen you to persevere in these times of uncertainty and turmoil? Does this truth, the person and work of Christ, your union with Christ strengthen your confidence in Christ? Paul provides these truths, these doctrines of the Christian faith to strengthen you to walk worthy of the Lord. In confidence of who Christ is, of confidence of what Christ has done, in confidence of your union with Christ, and in confidence of your future hope in Christ and glory. Let's pray.